Welcome to Marrow Masters Season 3, sponsored by the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and families cope with the psychosocial challenges of bone marrow stem cell transplant from diagnosis through survivorship. This season of Marrow Masters focuses on the patient perspective and many needs regarding bone marrow and stem cell transplant. Here is your host, Executive Director of the NBMT Link, Peggy Burkhardt. Welcome to Marrow Masters Patient Podcast Series, Season 3. Today we have Nina Kennedy with us. Nina is a bachelor's trained nurse with an extra oncology certification and a clinical trial nurse navigator for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Today's series will focus on the many needs of patients. And one very important area to always consider is clinical trials. We know that they save lives, but we also know there are some myths associated with trials and they can even be sometimes hard to navigate. Well, Nina is going to help us today sort it all out in basic comprehensive terms, sure to help patients and their caregivers better navigate clinical trials. Hi, Nina. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Peggy. Thanks so much for having me. I'll have you start by explaining the basic needs of clinical trials. What are they exactly? Great. Uh, Cancer clinical trials, specifically for cancer patients, they're controlled research studies. So lots of research is going on in labs all over all the time and not necessarily testing in humans. But there's a lot of lab work going on with scientists and doctors. And when they come up with an idea that they really feel would be beneficial to study further in patients, they put together what's called a clinical trial or basically an experiment or research study. And they're designed really to improve the care and treatment of cancer patients. The aim of a clinical trial would be to study a brand new therapy, so a drug that hasn't been seen yet before, or or maybe it's a, a medical device, not necessarily a drug, but normally in oncology, we're talking mostly about new drugs and technology in that area. Uh, Or it might be a a new use for an already approved therapy. So scientists and doctors uh, may be studying uh, something, a drug that is already approved by the FDA for use in, say, a different type of disease. And now they want to study it in a specific type of cancer. So in that case, it still has to go through the clinical trial process. We can't just say, oh, this works for this disease. Let's try it here. We still have to go through the laborious process of going through the experimental phases of a clinical trial uh, and testing it thoroughly and safely. Sometimes it is a trial may be designed to compare a new treatment with a standard treatment to find out which one works better or which one has fewer side effects, or maybe it's just uh, looking at quality of life. Is this new treatment easier for patients to deal with, such as you know uh, maybe a new pill versus going to an infusion center for an IV infusion? So that could be a clinical trial. Very interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of great reasons why doctors will study a, a drug. Are there more clinical trials now than ever? There are. There are There are so many. Uh, and sadly, uh, I'll go through the statistics here in a minute, but really, sometimes they don't even get completely filled because people are just unaware of them. And so they just, they close before uh, they can even um, be completed. Wow. So we need to do a better job advertising these trials. Yeah. Something we can possibly help you with at the link. Absolutely. We all hear there are myths surrounding clinical trials. Would you like to address that for us? There are a number of myths. So, you know, the first one is, you know, that we hear a lot is generally, you know, I don't want to be a a guinea pig. Uh, I don't want to be the experimental, the first person on, on a particular trial. And that can be a really scary thing. You do hear a lot of things like first in human. And sometimes these are drugs that are being tested for the first time in humans. 
But it is important for patients to understand that there's years of testing that goes on in a lab setting before they're actually approved for clinical trials in humans. Uh, Another myth, uh, I can only join a clinical trial if I've exhausted all other options, meaning it's kind of a last-ditch effort. And that is not true at all. There are a lot of clinical trials available throughout the disease process from the very beginning of newly diagnosed patients that have not seen any treatment yet, all the way through to, uh, yes, there are trials for patients that have failed different therapies and their diseases come back. But there are clinical trials, you know, throughout the whole disease process. I hear a lot, um, clinical trials aren't safe and I will not benefit from them. Again, the process starts in the lab and it's regulated really closely, lots of oversight by the FDA in the U.S., Uh, And so if anything seems unsafe, the trial is shut down really quickly. I hear a lot, I might get a placebo or a sugar pill instead of the real drug if I join a trial. Regulations require patients to know if the trial contains a placebo at all. But in the oncology and the cancer world, placebos are extremely rare. uh, And it would be unethical for a patient with active cancer to receive a placebo. So you will never see a trial that is for active disease where patients could be given a placebo only. If there's placebos involved, it's usually a standard treatment plus a placebo versus a standard treatment plus a new drug so that patients, all patients are getting some sort of known therapy to help their disease. So that's a big one that we hear a lot. And kind of the last one that we hear a lot is that clinical trials are free. I think a lot of patients that come to us wanting to go on clinical trial feel like that it's because they maybe they don't have insurance and so they want to go on a trial so that their care is paid for. And unfortunately, that is not the case. The drug that's being studied is generally provided by the study sponsor, and that is true. But the patient or the insurance company is still going to be responsible for the standard of care, uh, doctor visits, lab work, admissions to the hospital, any side effects, that kind of thing, is still going to be billed to the insurance company or, or in some cases the patient just as it would be if you were getting a standard of care treatment. So the entire trial is not free, although the drugs uh, being studied are generally covered by the sponsor. Wow, I did not realize that. That's good to know. And the placebo thing is so interesting because I do think that is a fear for people, uh, especially with active cancer. So thank you for clarifying those. Yeah. Nina, are there patient barriers to enrollment regarding clinical trials? Absolutely, absolutely. It is a really exciting landscape, but it is really difficult to to navigate. Some of the barriers that come up are, you know, health insurance and other financial constraints. As I just said, going on a trial is not necessarily free and patients may not have health insurance and really can't afford to pay for those standard of care doctor visits and lab work and all of those things that are required regardless of what kind of treatment that you're getting. There are also some health insurance policies, some of the managed care plans Uh, And it really varies a lot by state. And so I'm not going to try to go into all the specifics of insurance because that's an entire podcast on its own. But but there are some limitations. There are sometimes policies that limit patients to go on a trial, especially like a phase one trial. So it is important to understand your insurance, have that conversation with your insurance company if a trial is something that you're considering to make sure that that would be allowed on your specific policy. So that is certainly a barrier. Um, Geography is a barrier. Trials are not run at every location, every site all over the country. They're generally, especially some of the earlier trials, are really run only at some of the comprehensive cancer centers, at some of the big university research centers. 
And so if you're living in a more remote setting where you're not real close to a large cancer center, you might not have access to a trial that's kind of in your backyard. You might have to travel for a specific treatment. Okay. Yeah. And that's just a lack of awareness. I mean, the patients don't really know about the trials. And sadly, only about 5% of adult cancer patients actually go on trial. And a lot of that is because of these barriers. It's just a, a lack of awareness that there are this many trials going on out there. Okay. Well, I hope this podcast today will help clear that up for a lot of people and educate them so that they are more aware of all these opportunities. Absolutely. You know, how can patients find out if there are appropriate clinical trials out there for them? There are a lot of different services. And the most important thing is there is a website that is managed by the National Institutes of Health called clinicaltrials.gov. And all clinical trials in the U.S. and really everywhere, but for sure the U.S. trials and Canada are all listed on this website. It's a search engine. It allows you to go in and, and search for a specific disease. This is not just for oncology. It's for any type of illness or disease. And you can go in and to search lots of different search filters to find a list of trials. The problem is that when you get this, maybe a list back or this group of trials back, Sometimes they're not appropriate. Sometimes the information is in a real scientific lingo. It's very hard to understand what the trial is. There are a lot of what we call when a trial is built, it has what we call eligibility criteria. So just like any type of a science experiment, you have to make sure that the population of patients is all similar. Otherwise, we, you know, we really can't conduct a true clinical trial or experiment. So eligibility criteria, meaning inclusion and exclusion, needs to be met to, for patients to be eligible for that trial. In other words, they have to have the same disease. Maybe there are age limitations. Perhaps there are uh, certain pre-existing conditions that patients can't have in order to be on. So like uh, maybe a, if the patients had a recent heart attack, they might not be eligible for certain trials because that wouldn't be safe to put those patients on. So all of this information is listed. It's really not presented in a way that's very user-friendly, especially for the general public. There are some matching services out there as well, kind of like computer databases, again, that where you kind of just put in some of your information and a list of potential trials is spit back to you. But it's, again, not real personalized. So the landscape is just really, really hard for the general public to navigate. Okay, so how can we help with that? How does LLS assist patients in this area? Well, about uh, close to four years ago now, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society really realize that there is this huge need for more patients, A, to take advantage of these clinical trials that were going on as, as there is so much more money and, and investment put into cancer research and realize that there was just this, all these barriers that patients were bumping up against and so weren't really taking advantage of the opportunity. So LLS put together the Clinical Trial Support Center, the CTSC at LLS, and we are a group of trained nurses and nurse practitioners. Some of us are nurses, some of us are nurse practitioners. All of us have oncology experience and specifically experience with blood cancer, the hematological malignancies. And a lot of us have clinical research experience. For example, my, my background before joining the LLS was a clinical research nurse at a large cancer center. And so I managed patients that were on clinical trials and managed a portfolio of clinical trials. So really have a good understanding of what are clinical trials and how patients kind of proceed through them. So we have this group of nurses and 
they really want, LLS wanted to add in this personalized matching service. So it's not just a database of, okay, here's your list of trials, but we spend time talking to the patient. So when a patient comes to us, we don't have access necessarily to their medical record, but we hear all their story. We ask lots of questions as if we were sitting in a clinic with them to find out what their story is, uh, what their history is, what their treatment history is. And then we do a personalized search based on you know, what they tell us about their disease, the disease history, their geography. You know, you might have a patient who lives in California but has a close relative that they could stay with in Seattle. So they might want to look at a search close to home, but also in the Seattle area because they could go physically be there for some time. So kind of asking those personalized questions. And then we come back to them with a list of truly viable trials that could be opportunities for them to consider. We always encourage them to go back to their healthcare team to discuss those more thoroughly. You know, ultimately, the oncologist that they're working with is the one that's going to know best if a trial is viable for them. But we really try to at least arm them with the information to have those conversations. Wow, that's great. That must really help having that personalization and all of that, the personalized search, I should say. Yeah, we do follow it up. We don't just, you know, give them the search. We then, you know, if they come back to us with, you know, that, you know, my doctor thinks these would be good trials, we can actually then go to the sites on their behalf and find out a little bit more about, you know, the enrollment process. And if there is maybe a slot open on that particular trial and kind of start the conversation with the site. And we follow up as long as the patients want us to or their family members uh, to, you know, to make sure that there aren't other things that we can do. So it really is a personalized service that goes beyond just here's your list of trials. And since you started this four years ago, have you seen an increase in the number of patients taking advantage of clinical trials? There hasn't been a huge increase in the number of adult patients. Um, we do see pediatric patients. Uh, a lot of pediatric patients go on trials, and a lot of that is because, you know, when kids get cancer, they're generally treated at a larger academic setting and have access to those trials. We haven't seen a huge number of patients, you know, overall as far as like national surveys. It's, it's really hard. We haven't done specific surveys. Certainly our patients that we talk to, we do kind of keep track of the patients that go on trials that we work with. But on a national level, I think it would be hard to track that being that there's just more and more trials every day, every week. So are the numbers really reflective of our service? I think it would be hard to tell specifically. But I feel that, you know, we are trying to get the education out there, not necessarily just to our service, but also just that there are lots of clinical trials going on. And, you know, whatever patients can do to try to take advantage of looking into them, it would be great. We are working with the American Society of Hematology or ASH, and we offer our service to those doctors as well. So again, trying to help not only the patients and family members specifically, but letting some of these doctors that just are so inundated with patients on a day-to-day that they don't really have time to do the searches themselves. So trying to get our service out there to other entities to make sure that we're hitting as many patients and doctors and caregivers as possible. And of course, this is a free service. Oh, that's terrific. Is there a website that you want to share for people to get started? Absolutely. So LLS.org is our main Leukemia and Lymphoma Society website. The CTSC, the Clinical Trial Support Center, is listed right there. Uh, There are links right on our website for patients to be able to fill out a referral form for themselves or a family member that might be looking for help, looking for a clinical trial. 
The LLS website itself is just chock full of information. We have a group of information resource center, which are master's trained social workers that they can also talk to about financial considerations and other education pieces that might be important for them. So there's just a ton of information, but the CTSC LLS.org link is what will send them directly to the trained nurses to help them with a clinical trial search. Terrific. Are there any special considerations? So someone's decided to go on a trial. What what should they be thinking about? So first of all, I think the biggest send home message I, w- I would say for all of this is to begin the conversation early and have it often with your provider. If you have cancer or one of your family members or friends does, you know, really from diagnosis, asking that question of what about a clinical trial? What about a clinical trial? And continuing to, to circle back to that so that the conversation is always happening. If a patient does find a trial through our service or through any other service or through their doctor that recommends them going on a trial, they will go through what's called signing an informed consent form. It is a long, lengthy legal document, which is sometimes really daunting. But I think the uh, important thing to consider is that uh, the patient should really feel that they have time to read through it and ask a lot of questions. Bring an advocate with you to the doctor's appointments, Another, really another set of ears to hear all the information that they're getting. I think a cancer diagnosis on its own is so overwhelming. And then when you start throwing in a bunch of scientific and clinical trial type terminology, it can be extremely daunting. So having a, an advocate that can really just listen and you know jot down information and ask questions on your behalf is also really important. And also to know that Let's say you're at the doctor and you, you know, you've thought about it and you've decided to start a clinical trial and you sign this long document providing your informed consent. It's not a contract. At any time that you decide that, you know, this is not for me, I, I don't want to go on this trial, I'd rather just go back to a standard therapy, you just say the word and you're taken off the trial. It is certainly not anything binding. So those are, are important. And thinking about questions to ask the doctor. Uh, when you're reading through that informed consent is important. And I don't know if we have time to go through some of those, but I do have quite a few questions that patients could think about when they're in that informed consent process. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about or share? Well, you know, I think it's always important to kind of put a personal spin on things. Uh, You know, it's really easy for me to sit here and talk about all these great cancer treatments and experimental, you know, clinical trials that are going on out there. Um, But in my years working as a clinical research nurse, I worked with a lot of patients on trial. Um, And, you know, quite a few stand out to me as, you know, patients that I will will never forget. Um, But I kind of wanted to just end with one um, that really sticks out on kind of um, a standout of a patient that the general public may not consider would be a clinical trial patient. And, you know, a little bit about his story, if I might. Yes, absolutely. So I'm thinking of, we'll call him Peter. That is not his real name, but let's call him Peter. Um, Peter was a, is a, a 76-year-old male diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma, which is kind of an unusual lymphoma in an older person. It's usually one of those lymphomas that strikes younger patients. But in any case, Peter had Hodgkin lymphoma. Again, 76 years old. Uh, he was treated with a, his initial chemotherapy and the disease didn't completely go away, so he got a second type of therapy, and the disease really started to come back. So in a younger patient, the standard of care or what, what would technically be, you know, kind of the plan from there would be to give some more intense chemotherapy and take that patient to an autologous stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant. And unfortunately, with a 76-year-old man with um, with some comorbidities, you know, he had some 
mild heart conditions, some mild diabetes, you know, um, where he was just being monitored and wasn't, you know, on insulin or anything like that, but definitely had some comorbidities. And just because of his age, wasn't in the most wonderful shape of his life. He's really not a candidate for transplant. So, you know, we have to look at what's next. And the provider offered him a clinical trial using a drug that was not a chemotherapy. It was a new, uh, what we call immunotherapy. So uh, a targeted therapy that doesn't just kind of go in and destroy everything in its path like a chemotherapy generally does, but an immunotherapy where it really targets the disease, not without side effects, but does really target the disease with ideally fewer side effects than chemotherapy, that it's kind of a more gentle treatment. And with an, you know, an older, more frail person, of course, that would be ideal. So, you know, we had our meeting with the man and his wife, who, by the way, drove two and a half hours to get to the cancer center. They live in a little bit remote area. And, you know, he signed the consent form. And before we were able to get him on the trial, there are certain tests that need to be done to make sure that, you know, his lab work looked okay and his lung function looked okay, that type of thing. And right before we were able to do that, he had a scan that showed that his disease was kind of exploding. And the doctor was not comfortable proceeding right then at that moment with the clinical trial because we were concerned that his disease would just not respond quickly enough to this experimental drug that we just didn't have enough data for. So a very wise doctor uh, admitted the man to the hospital and gave him a round of chemotherapy, which was not the plan. But luckily, our patient, uh, Peter, tolerated it pretty well. And after a few weeks, was able to, you know, recover more. And then at that point, we revisited the clinical trial and were able to then, um, you know, his disease had gotten a little under control, though still certainly needed treatment. And he was able to go on the trial. The trial was a 30-minute infusion once every three weeks. And he has been in remission for the last three and a half years with no issue. He was oh, that's... on the drug only six months. And so those kinds of stories for a person with a really treatable disease, and I put that in quotes, but a very treatable disease, but that would normally be in a transplant situation is not able to go to transplant. A clinical trial really you know, saved his life and allowed him to continue in a very healthy, active lifestyle for many more years. And I haven't spoken to him for a little while, but I'm hoping that he continues to be in remission. So that is one story that really sticks to me as to why, you know, being persistent and looking at the options, including clinical trials, is so important. Well, that's a great story. And we all hope that Peter is doing well today. Absolutely. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Nina. It's been just so enlightening and wonderful to have you. And I appreciate your time. And in the show notes, people can learn more about those links. I think this is terrific. And I thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I really would love to encourage any patient or family member or friend, uh, maybe that's dealing with a blood cancer, to really look at the LLS.org website and look us up at the Clinical Trial Support Center within that website to see if we can offer some help for them, or at least talk to one of our Information Resource Center specialists to see what other types of help we might be able to offer them throughout the journey that um, that sometimes is, is very long and arduous. And obviously, that's what we do. We're just here to help patients. And I just really, really appreciate your time today to be able to tell some stories and to hopefully provide a little piece of education here and there for some patients and families that might be looking for next steps. Well, thank you. Thank you, Peggy. This has been the Marrow Masters Podcast. Feel free to share this episode via social media, text, or email. To hear more, subscribe for free to Marrow Masters in your favorite podcast app. 
To learn more about the resources available to patients and caregivers, check out the National Bone Marrow Transplant link at nbmtlink.org. That's nbmtlink.org. Or just tap the link below in the show notes.